Welcome to Law Technology Now. I'm Ralph Baxter, and this is my ninth episode as co-host of the show. My guest today is Jillian Hadfield, who, in my view, is one of the world's leading agents of change for redesigning our legal infrastructure to make it work better for everyone. Jillian and I today will talk about what she calls reinventing law and how her ideas apply to our current regulatory system and to reforms currently underway in the United States. We're recording this episode remotely, of course, because we're in a pandemic. Jillian is at her home in Toronto, Canada, and I'm in my home in Wheeling, West Virginia. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors. Thanks to Acumass, patent and trademark renewal payments made easy. Find out how Acumass.com can take the stress out of annuities and save you money on European patent validations today. Thanks also to Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at $250 per matter per month. Create your free account anytime at Logical.com LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash LTN. And thanks also to Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Jillian Hadfield is one of the genuine big thinkers in the world of law. She has a law degree, of course, from Stanford University, but she also has a PhD in economics, also from Stanford. She's currently a professor of law and of strategic management at the University of Toronto, where she is also the inaugural director of the Schwartz-Reisman Institute for Technology and Society. Jillian is an active member of the World Economic Forum, where she's been active in a number of the key committees. And I mention that because her approach and outlook on reinventing law isn't born just of academics or of talking to lawyers, but of talking about these subjects with the great leaders of business, religion, and government at at the World Economic Forum. And then finally, she has written a remarkable book called Rules for a Flat World, Why Humans Invented Law and How to Reinvent It for a Complex Global Economy, that is an essential resource for anyone who really wants to understand what's going on with law, the role of law in our society, and how to make it work better. But Jillian is not just a thinker, she is a doer. For at least 15 years, she's been working on making law work better. As she teaches her students not just the substance of law, but she teaches them legal design and innovation so that when they become lawyers, they can do what they do better and more imaginatively. She served as a member of the groundbreaking ABA Commission on the Future of Legal Services in the United States from 2014 to 2016, which culminated in a very important report in August of 2016 that has paved the way for much of the reform being considered in the United States today. And then finally, she is active with several United States uh, states who are considering reforming the way they regulate law practice, including specifically the state of Utah, uh, which we'll talk about today. So, Jillian, welcome to Law Technology Now. Thanks, Ralph. It's really great to be here. So let, let's start with how you first became interested in changing uh, the way law works. So I was 
Working on law and economics coming out of my, my joint degree, thinking about this relationship between contracting, the way the economy works, and law. In that context, doing a lot of research, sort of the conventional kind. But at some point, I got involved in the legal system myself, much like the doctor who gets sick. Uh, it was a family dispute. And had the experience of what it looks like on the inside, what it looks like to be somebody who has high stakes matters in the hands of this process, this complex process, this very, very expensive process. And I think the fact that I was both a lawyer and an economist, you know, I was well off, I had lots of resources, and yet it was so difficult, so difficult to get to good outcomes in my family, so difficult to sort of manage the stress and the financial impact that I think it sort of put me in a position of saying, okay, I guess I have to start trying to think about how to fix this. That's got to be my job because I have this capacity being on the inside to sort of say, okay, what's going on with this as an economic matter? What's going on with this as a legal matter? So I think that was, that was where it started, that I got very focused on thinking about how do our legal institutions work? How do our legal markets work? Because I knew that since I was finding it so difficult, the vast majority of people who were trying to deal with the system must find it overwhelming. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's very important to understand why people who are leading initiatives in the way that you are, why they're doing that, what motivates them, how it starts. You used a word, outcome, as you described your experience. And as we'll talk about, because it's one of the things that, that you focus on in reform, lawyers are often not adequately focused on the outcome from the perspective of the client. They're focused on an outcome, all right, and it's a worthy outcome, but it's not necessarily the one that the, the client has in mind. All right, well, thank you for sharing that. Now, we're going to progressively go from the general to more specific issues here, but I want to start with a very general idea. You bring a perspective from your research and your, I'm sure, from your economics background as well as law to the role of law in the world, in society. You describe it as the invisible platform on which virtually everything is built. Can you, can you share with our audience uh, an overview of that idea? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, we, we're used to thinking about law and it's very complex. It's the product of governments. And in fact, a lot of economists, again, I'm part, you know, part economist, think of, you know, there's, there's markets, there's economies, and then law comes in as something external and we kind of layer it on top. But I think the, the thing that I think is really important to recognize is that, in fact, everything humans do rests on, because we're an incredibly cooperative species, right? That's why we enjoy everything that we enjoy. It's because we're able to organize in complex relationships and groups. And all of that depends on the existence, basically, of a set of rules that we all say, well, okay, if you and I are going to work on something together, we understand that we will you know, respect each other, that we will share in our in the product of that in a way that we've agreed on, that we won't be harmed, and so on. So that basic platform of rules is essential to just humans living together in our complex ways. And I think it's really critical to think about that rule basis as, so that's true in all societies, whether you have law or not. Law is just sort of the, you know, eventually we evolve systems of those kinds of rules that better achieve our goals, 
allow us to be even more complex and achieve even more as sort of from an economic and social perspective. And I really think it's, so I use the language of infrastructure to talk about those rules. And I say like, yeah, the invisible platform, because I think it's important for us to recognize that that's what we're building on. And that's why if we don't get it right, if it's not available, if it's not well adapted to the environment, you know, everybody is walking on quicksand. Everybody is walking on a, a broken platform. We can't build the way we want to build. So, so I think it's, it's critical to see the role of law at that very fundamental. It's underneath everything we do, because I think we need to take it very seriously. We need to recognize what's working and not working about it and understand why it matters so much to just about everything we do, everybody on the planet, every activity we're trying to accomplish, we need to understand how this platform is working and how to make it work better. Right. And as you, as you talk about in the book, there always have been rules, and they were created informally in different settings through history. It's like a, lo- a lot of things about our modern world. We forget that communication worked differently and rules worked differently to, before we had a formal infrastructure. Now we have a formal infrastructure that, that we've created. It's more and more in everybody's life. There's more law than ever before, more regulation. Data makes it more complicated to to comply with the law. There's all of that. But then there's a world ahead, and we'll come to a little bit later, but there's a world ahead that's going to get way more complicated Mm -hmm. and harder to understand, harder to manage, and our infrastructure needs to deal with that as well. So let's turn now to applying some of your thinking to the actual world of the formal legal system, uh, legal infrastructure that we have in the United States. I know that for your book, you did a lot of research about how well law is working today. And I'd like to ask you about three different dimensions of that. The first is access to justice, the consumer, the ordinary person getting the legal service he or she needs. How's that going? It's not going well. The basic answer there is that for the ordinary person, even in in affluent countries uh, like our own, doesn't have access to very much of the platform of those rules. So, you know, the statistics would tell us, there's not very careful statistics, but I think it's a very safe estimate that it's at least 80% of the population that effectively has no access to legal resources for, you know, advice about, you know, signing a lease agreement or trying to work out a family dispute or respond to an immigration challenge or uh, eviction notice. I, I suspect the numbers are, are and I, for example, in, I think there was a study in Utah in their courts, this is about representation in courts now, uh, 93% of the matters that came through civil and family court had one, at least one party who was unrepresented the entire way through that right. matter. Right. So the, the numbers are staggering. And effectively, that means that, as you sort of described, you know, this, what I call the law-thick environment, it's all around us. Everything we are doing is shaped by a set of rules, increasingly complex rules, rules that you and I can read and may understand. And maybe we would argue about what does this one mean and what does that one mean? And I think it's really important to connect with the fact that for the vast majority of the population, they don't know what those rules are. They don't know how to operate in these systems. They have to. They don't have a choice in many cases. So this is not about, hey, you know, we're just going to litigate over this, you know, the slip and fall in the grocery store. Uh, This is my entire life is structured by this, but I don't have the capacity to ask somebody with expertise what will happen if I sign that. 
how do I see my kids? It's staggering, really, the, the lack of access. The statistics are staggering, and, and there's, lo- there's lots of different studies, and we can debate exactly what the numbers are. But I think it's fair to say most normal citizens don't have access to the legal service they need in our country. And it isn't just the poorest, although that's, it's, the poorer you are, the worse it is. And as you say, the challenge includes both just even recognizing that there is a legal issue. It would be a mistake to think that the issue is only the access to justice. So you did research with general counsel of major companies about their experience with legal service. And what did you find from that research? Yeah, so so I you know I told you how I got into this with you know sort of my own experience, but I didn't want to write about myself. So even though I you know I was sort of motivated by that, I actually did start just by saying how how are these you know the economics of this working? And early on, started talking to general counsel at you know some of our biggest, most innovative innovative companies. This was in the mid two thousands, is before the the crash, the financial crisis. So at Google and at Cisco and and so on. And the thing that was so striking there was that, by and large, they said they found the same. I I didn't talk about my family situation or my own personal experience, but I found that they were saying much the same thing. It's too expensive. It's not solving my problem. Lawyers are not really helping me solve or get to where I need to get to. And I would really like good legal guidance in a very, very complex environment. They were not saying, I don't feel like I need lawyers. These were lawyers that I was speaking to. But they were saying, I just can't seem to find out there in the market the type of legal help that I need, which right. was really quite quite stunning. Having spent 40 years in big law, I understand why it can be that way. And you understand, as we're about to talk about, the role that the regulation plays in causing it to be so what you found that that the the general counsel would say, I don't have other alternatives, even though the service that I'm getting measured by how I feel about it isn't satisfactory. They know that they mm-hmm. know the law. They can find the courthouse. They're really good at. It. I mean, the, before I go further, neither you nor I is involved in or has any in, interest in bashing lawyers. They're very smart. They're well intentioned. They're hardworking. That they're not the problem. The problem is the, the system. So. Let's, we're about 10 minutes in. Let's take our first break for a word from our sponsors and then we'll continue. Trying to cut costs? You're not alone. In today's climate, a five-figure e-discovery bill per month is steep. Don't pay that. Use Logical to reduce expense and control your discovery process. Get started today for only $250 per matter and they'll waive migration costs from competing platforms. For more information, visit logical.com LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. Welcome back. We're here today with Jillian Hadfield talking about reinventing law. So, Jillian, you use an expression that we need to reinvent law. What what do you mean by that? So the reason that I sort of go back to the very core idea that there are you know, rules are at this basic platform and that they support everything that we do is because we've come to define law as the way we do it, the way we do it now. Law is what governments produce. Law is what lawyers do. Law is lots of text, lots of language, contracts that look like this and so on. And so what I wanted to do was to really say, look, 
there's this fundamental function that law is performing. It's critical. I think it's basically, you know, it, it undergirds everything else we do. And what's happened is that the particular way in which we produced law and priced law and developed legal expertise and built this legal infrastructure, that's what's grown out of touch with what we really need it to be doing. So reinventing law for me is about saying, okay, not about getting rid of law. It's, it really is about figuring out how to get law to be more responsive to what it is we need it to do in a more complex, advanced uh, world. And, and even to be able to do things that, as I say, even, you know, the, the lack of access that the ordinary person has, you know, that's been with us for a very long time. So it's not just about, hey, it's a much more technologically advanced world. So the reinventing of law is to say, what is it law needs to do fundamentally? What are other ways we could do that? Right. And and th this is one of the ways in which uh, your book is so helpful, because it, when you read the history of law and the way that it has emerged over time and its application in different settings and so on, it's easier to see the big picture that we need to solve. And, and it's easy, easier to liberate yourself from the focus on the rules as we know them. So I've heard you just outline four different things that we need to do to reinvent law, my version. So one is to think big. And that's, I think, where you were starting. Just to think about, well, you tell me, what, what, is, what does that mean in this context, think big? Yeah, well, I, I think it's, it's think big in the sense of, first of all, take law very, very seriously. And then also be willing to reinvent from the ground up, right? To, to let go of whatever it is we do as law must look the way we do it now. All we can do is refine that particular model. So I think the think big is, and this is sort of just a, this is a, a classic technique for innovation, right? Which is at least explore what are some very, very different ways in which we could accomplish the same objectives. So yeah, be willing to throw it out. Now, you're probably going to put stuff back in but at least start off by being willing to say, what do we need it to do? What are the other ways we could do that? Right. I find myself saying a lot, we don't need change around the edges. We need fundamental change, and, and we've got to see the big picture. Second, you say we need diversity. Now, in most of the time when we're in, talking about law and law firms, we think about diversity in, ver in the very worthy context of more people of color, more women, and so on. And those are very worthy and necessary objectives. But you're talking about diversity beyond that. What do you mean by diversity here? So what I mean by diversity in this context is diversity of ways of thinking about our problems and possible solutions. And I think one of the reasons so that, that our, our legal systems have really failed to innovate in response to the needs of the people who use them. So that's whether it's in that ordinary person context and it's too expensive or it's the big corporate context and it's, hey, I need help in a different way than you are providing it because the world looks very different. What you're seeing there is a system that's not being responsive, I'm an economist, to its market. It's not responding to demand. I think the core reason for that is we have a very, very closed system. We have a very homogeneous system. Everybody, we've set it up so that everybody who's involved in delivering legal services, writing legislation, judging cases, et cetera, we've all been educated in the same way. 
We've all probably read the first same cases. We did read the same cases in first year contract law, which I teach. You know, we use the same frameworks. That's we've we pass the same type of exams. And so that's a tremendous lack of diversity in ways of thinking. That's the divert, you know, the and, and diversity of thinking is just critical to innovation. You need somebody who comes in and says, well, I never thought about this before, but I've got this other little bit of expertise. And how come you haven't thought about it this way? Why haven't we tried that? And I think that's that's been a, a, a core reason for the lack of innovation in law. Right. And, it, and this applies both to innovation in the regulations, innovation in thinking about the big picture, but it's applicable day, every day of the week in solving particular issues of our clients, whether it's in a big law firm or it's in a public public interest law firm or someplace else. All right. Third is feedback. Yeah. So, so this is like, and this is, so anybody who's, who's, you know, worked in a startup or in any kind of inventive environment, you know, what you're really trying to do is get feedback from your user or from your customer about what's working for you, what's not working for you. If you are cut off from that feedback, if you never learn how well is my product or service working for you, you can't figure out better ways to do it. And again, because we have been a very closed environment, we don't get a lot of feedback from the end user, who is both the client, but also the public and you know those who are affected by what we're doing in, in the legal system more generally. We just don't get that kind of feedback. And what you need is feedback, you know, with you know, with clout. It's not right. just, you know, the survey result. It's I'm taking my business elsewhere because you're not solving my problem. And while, you know, so go to the general counsel that I spoke to, obviously have huge legal budgets and the capacity to hire the best of the best. So when they say to me, I can't hire what I need, what they're finding is, you know, not that they can't go from excellent law firm A to excellent law firm B, which of course they can, and lawyers experience it, experience it as highly competitive at that level. What they're saying is I can't go to the entirely different approach to this problem that wasn't trained with a JD and in the law school and takes the bar exam, that, that basically the product or service they're getting from you know, even our best, best, best lawyers kind of all looks the same. Right. So that's, that's the lack of feedback where it says, you know, they, they don't have a good threat that says, Sorry, I'm going. I'm taking my. I'm taking my problem to the engineers. Mm-hmm. I'm taking it to the graphic designers. I'm taking it to the organizational psychologists instead to solve. And it, it's a different idea than the conventional idea that lawyers operate with normally, which, as you say, is like a survey, a casual conversation about how is it going, that doesn't ask these these really big questions and that leaves c- clients dissatisfied in the way you were with the experience you had as, a, as an individual at, mm-hmm. years ago and in the way the different uh, J- GCs that you interviewed were dissatisfied in the, as, in the way that they would respond to you in the context of your conversation, but they wouldn't share that with the law firms because the law firms can't do it. The last I- issue is investment, which I think is one of the most important. Just talk a little bit about why it's important to have investment at all levels. Right. So these are hard problems, understanding how to help more people. So let's think about the COVID situation right now. I mean, if you want to think about an absolute avalanche of, of, I mean, it's one thing to pass laws that say you're entitled to this, you know, how, you know, eviction relief or income support, 
but it's another to figure out how to get that help to people. That's a hard problem, right? What's the best solution to that? What's the best solution to giving the GC who's getting off, you know, the plane in China or Indonesia and says, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I need to negotiate this big deal. I need, I need, you know, I need a quick answer on how does this, how, you know, how do these different proposals work for me? Those are hard problems. Those are what I say. You need as much innovation in how to solve those problems as you do in the underlying economic and uh, social relationships. And when you need new solutions, you have to have investment, what I like to say risk capital, there to explore and realize that if we knew what the answer was, then we would just build it. You know, what does investment do for us? Investment, especially from, you know, risk risk investment, it supports the cost of exploring new solutions and going out and saying, well, let's try something different. Let's see what might work. Let's see how well this works. I think this is something that sort of in my conversations about innovation in legal, I think this is the thing that even the people who were the biggest supporters of the idea that we need to do things different, they had a very hard time seeing why do we need investment and risk capital in in law? It's a labor intensive. And it was saying, because you need somebody to keep the lights on while you're trying version one and version two and version three and version four, you know, until you get to the one that really works well. If it was a short path, you don't, you don't care, but we're a long path and you need a lot of, you need investment to, uh, to support that. A word that fits to this is experiment. You, you need to try different things, just as you said. And every, every entrepreneur knows that you are going to fail a fair amount of the time. In fact, yeah. more often than not, you're going to fail. Not fail the client, not leave the client in the lurch, but fail in, in the, uh, the wherewithal that you're building in order to serve a client better. And, and you're exactly right about the misunderstanding people have about capital and investment in law. All right, it's time here to take our second break. We'll take it quickly and then we'll return. Increase productivity and profitability through Acumass.com. Acumass provides cost-effective and reliable annuities management while keeping customer satisfaction at the helm of the action. With 40 years of excellence in the field of IP renewals, Acumass understands how quickly annuities can become burdensome for clients who would prefer their focus elsewhere. Contact info at acumass.com or visit acumass.com to discover how you can benefit from a management solution tailored to your needs. So we're back with Jillian Hadfield. And as I said at the beginning, I would like for Jillian to talk with us about the regulatory reform that is underway in Utah and other states, but Utah is the furthest advanced. So I'm, I'm going to skip through something that, that in, if we had more time, we could talk about. But Jillian, uh, having studied the, the way law works and the regulations work, has concluded, and I agree with her, that the way we regulate law in the United States causes some of the problems. So I just want to ask her that one question. How, how does the current regulatory format contribute to the shortcomings of the legal infrastructure today? Yeah, so let, let's think about the, the key reasons that we don't see a lot of innovation in law, a lack of diversity in thinking, a lack of feedback from, from the customer who can actually walk away and say, I, I need a better solution, and a lack of investment and risk capital there. All of those are a consequence of a regulatory environment that says, look, anybody who wants to provide any form of legal goods and services 
has to have this ha- has to be a member of a bar in a in the in in the state in which those services are provided. And in, in Canada, where I now live, it's it's on a provincial basis, but the same the same model. So that's what generates the lack of diversity. Everybody has the same. Everybody it's, it's all lawyers, lawyers everywhere with the same training and the same mindset. I mean, I always say, look, my my main job as a law professor is to train people so that they can always predict what the other lawyer is going to say. Because they say, we, you know, we all, that's, that's what we do is we think the same way. And that's, that's what we're, you know, that's a very helpful thing in some ways. Because if we're doing dispute resolution, we can predict what is the other side thinking and, and resolve. But it, it does produce this homogeneous environment. So our regulatory environment has everybody providing any kind of legal help has to be trained in this way. But then what we say in addition with our legal regulation is they not only have to be trained in the same way, they also have to operate and provide their services with a particular business model. And that business model is they have to provide it only in partnership. Now we can have sort of limited liability corporations, but effectively partnerships with other members of the same profession. They can't take any investment from anybody who's not a lawyer. They can't now, what lawyers call this, right, law, the legal regulations call this share fees, but in the rest of the economy, we just call those incentive contracts. You share profits and revenues. You can't have any of those kinds of contracts with any other types of providers of services or technology. And all of that says we are stuck in this business model that simply we don't see in much many other places in the economy, and that it's just simply not able to scale, to take advantage of technology, and just does not lead to innovation. And so I, this is why I think the absolutely most critical thing we can do to open up our legal systems so that we can get innovation and we can get legal services and goods in ways that are serve the needs of clients from the ordinary individual straight through to the global corporation much better is by opening up that business model. So... You have been involved with a state that has decided it agrees. Now, Mm -hmm. not all of our listeners will understand, but the rules in the United States are not federal. They're not national. Uh, They're state by state. In the states, almost always, it's the state Supreme Court, not the legislature, that sets the rules. So in Utah, with very forward-thinking leadership and in a, a partnership with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and the president of the Utah Bar... They worked with you and others and came to a creative solution that they are putting in practice as we speak. So could you describe what Utah has decided to do? Yes. So Utah is building a new regulator. And this is, so so as everybody knows, so ostensibly the regulator is the state Supreme Court. As as a practical matter, it's uh, bar associations that are doing that regulation. And so, first of all, notice that our our existing regulatory regimes, they license lawyers. And therefore, there's absolutely no way for an entity that isn't a lawyer, like a tech company or a bank or a church or a union or a civic group, to be a provider. of. They can't become a licensed provider of legal services. So the key message that I conveyed to a group of judges in the gosh, I think it was the spring of 2018, was 
Okay, so we've been through about 20 years of trying to change the rules governing lawyers to say, let lawyers you know, share fees or let them take outside investment. I said, that's really not the main issue. The main issue is we need a regulatory regime so that entities and organizations other than individual lawyers can be licensed to provide services. So I said, look, let's just build that regulator. And to my surprise, Justice Dino Jimonas and John Lund, who was then president of the Bar Association, said, you know, we're ready to start talking about this. And they were really serious. <laughs> so that's what we set out to do is just to say, what would it look like to build that, that regulator? And so the, the regulator is now set is, is now as an office of the state Supreme Court. The, it's actually been put into effect a little early to try and provide some COVID-related response, right. uh, but we're still in the process of, and so what's going to happen with that regulators is getting described as a sandbox, but it's really, it's a sandbox for the regulator. The idea is to, they've created a regulatory regime where providers other than uh, conventional JD trained bar uh, admitted lawyers can be licensed to provide legal services in the state. And a key uh, piece of that. So I say the the sandbox part of it is there's a two year period over which the this regulus new regulator will be figuring out how to effectively regulate, and a key piece of that regulatory approach is to say, so why do we regulate? We regulate to protect consumers, and what are we trying to do? We are trying to make sure that the services that people purchase through these new new providers make them better off than they are now. So like the first line of the regulatory model is when somebody applies to be a licensed provider in this sandbox, what will somebody get if they don't have this service? If, they, if this is not allowed to operate, how likely are they to get the right answer when they read their own eviction notice? Does this make them better off than that? Then if so, then that's the basis on which it should be approved. And that's really the big move. And it's a very big move. And what you were just getting into, the, the principles that Utah outlined for this innovation commission, the new regulator, to take into account include comparing what the outcome would be for a consumer under the proposal in front of them to what the outcome is today, knowing that today, 75%, 80%, some number are not going to have anything and right. then and then assessing how much risk does this idea does this process does this set of people whatever it is how much risk does that create let's evaluate that and then mm -hmm. license them if we think that it's it, the, it all adds up to a manageable responsible idea experiment see how it goes for a period of time and if it works well and safely throughout everything is designed to be safe for the consumer then it'll be licensed to go on uh, permanently, and if not, it won't. Yes, right. No, and, and I think the um, the key thing here is a couple a couple of things. Is that point to emphasize that you know I think when we've looked at the possibility of providing alternative types of services, lawyers, I think quite naturally will compare it to, but that won't be as good as having a lawyer do it. And in in many cases, that's exactly right. But that isn't a good answer because that's like saying. Well, you know, this fancy BMW with the, you know, the self-driving components and the, you know, the lane checker and all of that, the auto parking, that's so much better for everybody. It's like everybody should have that. Well, maybe everybody should, but we can't afford to do that. Right. 
and given the expense of our structures, we know that the that people aren't getting anything. So as you say, it, you know, you, we want to make sure people are, are, you know, reasonably safe. And so you're not going to allow this in domains where there's, you know, we're not putting this into death penalty cases. We're not putting this into those high state cases, but we're going to make somebody better off if they're showing up in court, otherwise, regardless, alone on a, you know, a child custody or a, a child support matter, on an eviction matter, an employment matter, they're trying to make sure that they resolve differences or difficulties in their small businesses better. We just need to make sure that they're they're reasonably safe relative to what's going to happen without that, which is for most people, they're going to have to muddle through on their own. Right. And the genius of this plan that has been developed with your assistance and the assistance of Lucy Rica and a number of other really dedicated people is that it can accommodate facts and and respond to a solution. So there are, as you say, some things you really do need a lawyer and you and solutions can be created that give you the lawyering that you need and, and not more than you need. You have a cost that fits to the stakes of the of the client, what the client can afford, and so on. So we're just about to run out of time. Let, let me just say about Utah, all of the information about what Utah is doing is available online. It's very clear and very well presented by the Utah Supreme Court. And there's a, a report that, that Jillian helped write uh, that sets up the, the, the case for the reforms. One other reference I want to give the listeners before we leave, on the whole question of regulatory reform and, and regulation of law in the United States, Jillian and Deborah Rohde wrote an article for the Hastings Law Journal in 2016, which is another wonderful re- resource for anyone interested in regulation because it helps you understand all the different models that one might pursue if one wants to engage in reform. And, and it has a lengthy discussion of how what England has done and, and how that is faring. Jillian, I'm, I'm, this went by like a rocket. I'm, I wish we had more time. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I hope you can come back again soon. There's so many other things I would like our listeners to hear from you. But this podcast is dedicated to exploring how law works and how to make it work better. And I, I can't think of a better Uh, guest and discussion than the one we just had. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ralph. It's been terrific. And thank all of you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please rate us on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, you can recommend us to your friends, especially those who aren't lawyers, because we're trying to reach an audience that goes beyond the usual suspects and talk to people for whom law matters, but who themselves are not lawyers. And until next time, this is Ralph Baxter for Law Technology Now. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.